John 16. We're doing verses uh, 5 through 15 this morning. Kind of a relatively big chunk, but not too bad. Actually, it's 4b through uh, 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that indeed we would see Jesus high and lifted up because he is at your side, that we might see his incredible majesty and his supremacy, and that in believing in his supremacy, we might see his sufficiency for us in our time of need. Open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Christ Jesus. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of His power at work in us and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this for His glory and for our good. Amen. I'm going to warn you. It's one of those weeks. I've told you about those weeks that happen sometimes where something happens between Thursday when I leave the office and when I show up the Sunday morning at the office. And that something is is that I've changed everything. Okay, I didn't change the text, and I rearranged a lot of it, Um, and so actually, well, the big idea is different, the two main points are different, see, you only got two this week, and I flip-flopped them in terms of how we're going to deal with the text, uh, because it made more logical sense to me as I was thinking about it last night, Um, see, I think about it. All day Saturday. So um, disregard that which you have in your order of worship. It will not help you very much. So uh, feel free to take notes as led by God. So that's, that's it. Um, but you and I, I mean, I'm throwing myself in with this, is that I think all of us struggle at times with the realities of apologetics and evangelism. Oh, when we're talking with people who don't share our faith in Christ, 
and we're trying to communicate that faith to them in a way that is clear and hopefully um, powerful and convicting, and yet too often we struggle with that. We're afraid, and sometimes we don't engage at all. Uh, We're afraid of their response, or we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing, or any number of things we can be afraid of. We don't feel qualified or competent at times to engage people with the claims of Jesus Christ. We can all feel that, I think. But I want us to remember that the disciples, most likely, at this point in John's Gospel, felt that very same feeling, that sense of inadequacy uh, and that fear that we probably experience. And Jesus gives them hope with what he says, which is intended to give us hope as well. Because he didn't just say it for them, he said it, although in a slightly different sense, for us as well. And that's what we're going to wrestle with a little bit this morning. The big idea is that Jesus sends the Spirit so we speak the truth to the world. Let's start off with the reality that Jesus speaks to the church through the Spirit. And this is more the second part part of this uh, sermon text, so forgive me for that confusion, but I thought it made more sense to deal with this first. But before we even get to that, there's the reality of sadness. If we look at the sermon text in two chunks, we see that each of them is introduced with the reality of the sadness of the disciples because Jesus is going away. This is in the midst of Jesus speaking. Like last week we talked about how the world is going to respond to the church and it's not going to be pretty. And so it's not just that that they're sad about, it's also that Jesus is not going to be there with them. And so He speaks to their pain in the midst of this. He acknowledges that sorrow has filled their hearts. And when we think about what He says there, in the sense of, did my Bible wrong. Um, but now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Of course, we don't want to take that in an absolute sense, because there have been a couple of instances. Thomas has asked this question. Peter has asked this question. But no one recently had asked this question. And the reason is because their hearts are full of sorrow. They're not concerned with the joy of Jesus. They're concerned with their own sorrow. And I think this is very important for us to recognize that when we're under affliction and when we feel sorrow, that that natural curved inwardness that we always experience, as uh, uh, Luther talks about, man curved inward, on his self in terms of pride and, and self-centeredness, that becomes exasperated usually when we're suffering. The more sorrow we experience, the more we turn curved in upon ourselves, almost like the fetal position in a sense. We become more captivated with what's going on with us and left less captivated with what is going on with others. And in this case, they are not rejoicing with Jesus over what He's going to experience. Not the cross, but the resurrection and the ascension because He's going to be with the Father. And that should say, 
I'm glad for you. Sometimes we struggle to find illustrations for things. I struggled on this one. This is a bad, I have a, bad, a lot of bad illustrations today. Okay, Greece, which if you go down to Mexico, on one of my mission trips, we saw a movie poster for the movie Greece, and it was Vaseline, which put a whole different thing in my head. <laughs> I mean, who wants to see a movie called Vaseline? Okay, but... After the summer, when they come back and Sandy and uh, Danny are telling their friends about what happened, tell me more, tell me more. I'm not going to sing anymore. See, he's upset with that. Okay? When your friend is full of joy, it is normal and natural for us to say, tell me more. Tell me more about this. And so here Jesus has shared something of his own joy, and they don't say, tell me more. They're not saying, Jesus, tell us more about where you're going. Tell us what it's like there. We know you're going to the Father, but we have no concept of what that really means. They don't even go there. Because sorrow has filled their hearts. Grief, we see later on, limits what Jesus is able to say. He says, I have many things to speak to you, but you cannot bear them now. And so Jesus doesn't press on to kind of dump these things. You know, I've only got a few more hours before I'm not going to talk to you anymore, so i got to press on. I, you know, I pressed on in Sunday school past the appointed hour. Jesus didn't do that, okay? He says, He's got a plan, so hang on. But still, he's like, you can't bear it now. And so, in light of their their grieving and their sorrow, he's not going to become, so to speak, Job's counselors and give them bad counsel and things. But he's going. he is going to speak, but he's going to speak that which they need to hear, which is intended to encourage them. Okay? Which now leads us into where I think we need to go. He says that they will, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is the same word that Caiaphas used in John 11, verse 50, when he says that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And so when Caiaphas makes this prophecy, it's the same word. It's better to to your advantage that this happen. And then, of course, on Sunday, Eli is asking me, Dad, do I have to have this surgery? Essentially, he's asking, is it to my advantage to have this surgery? Because it's not a very pleasant thing. Just as for the disciples, it was not a pleasant thing for them to be without Jesus. And just as I told Eli, it is to your advantage to go through this time of affliction and pain for your long-term good, this short-term discomfort and affliction for long-term good. It was to their advantage to go through this absence of Christ. And it was only to their advantage because if he goes, he's now able to send the Holy Spirit. Such that one advantage of that would be that the disciples don't all have to be in the same place and be with Jesus. 
But the Spirit is able to mediate and come to each of them, even though they're going to be scattered around the world. It's not like they all have to be in the physical presence of Jesus. Something amazing is going to happen. Now, this is important because he says, you're not going to, essentially, he's saying, you're not going to miss out on what I have to tell you because I am going to send you the Spirit of truth. The one who speaks truthfully and speaks truth is going to come to the disciples when they become apostles, and he is going to guide them and lead them into all truth because he is the Spirit of truth. Speaking here most likely of the epistles. They're going to be able to understand that which Jesus did and be able to write about it and apply it to the situations of the church. They're going to see how the Old Testament was talking all about this and now they're going to bring that treasure trove of information to bear on the circumstances of particular churches for their good. And it will be available to us for our good as well. And so the Spirit is going to guide them into all truth. Now, let's not be like most people. How many of you have gone on a guided tour and you've tuned out the tour guide? Because, you know, they're not going at the pace you want, you see. They're maybe not talking about the thing that interests you at that particular moment. They're talking about something else and you're engaged with, wow, because all of us are different. You know. Uh, for instance, when I went to uh, the old Parliament building in London, it was shortly after Braveheart had come out, so I'm fascinated about, this is the spot where William Wallace was condemned. The tour guide might be off somewhere else. We didn't have a tour guide. We just strolled around. This is the tour guide, so to speak, that we need to listen to. Because his agenda and purpose is far grander and greater than our agenda and purpose. And so it behooves us to go lead the way. You talk about what you need to talk about because that's what I need to hear. It may not be what I want to hear today, but trusting you, it is what I need to hear today. And so the church because it was about to face the world, needed the truth about who Jesus was and about what He had done. And it is the Spirit that comes and brings that truth to the church. Let's lay a few things out that we need to do. We need to remember that like Jesus, the Holy Spirit does not speak on His own authority or initiative, but only that which He hears. And so... The Spirit is like Jesus in that respect. There's a sense in which it's, I almost hate to use this term, but holy gossip, because gossip is sinful. Okay, But we've all been there. We hear someone speaking. We're not engaged in this conversation, but we overhear something, and something that they're talking about interests us, and so we listen. And sometimes we just keep that to ourselves, and sometimes we spread it abroad. I know some of you have done that. I know I have done that. The Spirit hears that which the Father and the Son say. And now, in this sense, he's, he's not doing something wrong. He's doing something right because he's intended to hear and he's intended to proclaim it or announce it to the church. 
And he does that. Okay? And he, he announced it particularly to the apostles, as it says here about what he's heard and what will come. And so there's about an aspect of the future that is at play here. Like Jesus, the Holy Spirit also serves as an ambassador for someone else. Jesus talks repeatedly about having been sent. In fact, even in this, te- this context, it talks about because I'm going to the one who sent me. Because Jesus was always in his earthly ministry uh, uh, focused on that reality that he was one who was sent. He was an ambassador. He was only to speak that which the Father told him to speak. And the Spirit is the same way. He's an ambassador. He's only to speak that which the Father and Son tell him to speak and announce to the world. Not because he is inferior to them, but because he submits to them for our benefit. Okay? The Spirit is not seeking glory for himself, but we see here that Jesus says, The Spirit will glorify me. And so, as J.I. Packer talks about in his book, Knowing God, this illustration of sort of the floodlights. And the Holy Spirit is not the one upon whom the floodlight shines. The Spirit is the floodlight that shines on Christ. So that people might see Christ who redeems them more clearly. That is His aim. He's not like, hey, look at me. He's, hey, look at the Son. The Eternal Son. Look at the Redeemer. And so... He sees himself not as someone who wants attention, but is directing our attention somewhere else that we might glorify and honor him. And now, what he says here continues on. He glorifies him in a particular way. He glorifies him precisely by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. And so it's the revelation about Christ that glorifies Christ. I hope that makes sense. His revelation comes directly from Jesus. It is about Jesus and is intended to glorify Jesus. And so the apostles, just like the prophets before, as we confessed, were led by the Spirit as they revealed God's will. We see in 2 Peter 1, which our kids looked at this week for their Bible study fellowship lessons, okay? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the prophets in the Old Testament were carried along, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore uh, were brought in the present, the counsel of God and given a message and brought that message back in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles, too, are carried along by the Holy Spirit as they write the rest of the Bible. It is not just their profound thought of the day. I used to journal. And I would journal about God and I would journal about my circumstances. The Bible is not these guys journaling. Because it is from the Holy Spirit, it has authority 
and it has power to change lives. If you read my journal, if you can find a copy, I may have burned them all by now, you will not be impressed with me. You will not be impressed, I don't know if you if you'd be impressed with Jesus, but you would, might be impressed that Jesus would love one such as me. Okay? When we read the scriptures, we cannot help be impressed with Jesus. When we see who he is and what he has done and how the Father has exalted him. So, they weren't making things up. They weren't relying upon their own memories or their mental faculties to try and piece all of these things together. The doctrine that they taught is one that they received through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Scriptures, while they were written by people, were produced by the triune God for us. We talk about the dual authorship of Scripture. And so we don't understand that. There's an element of mystery to that. Okay, it's, it's not like Joseph Smith and uh, the magic tablets and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's not that they were possessed with some, like a Ouija board and they just started writing and couldn't control their hand. In a way that we can't comprehend, they acted of their own will and yet wrote exactly what the Spirit wanted them to write for us. That is mysterious. But that would appear to be what the Scriptures teach. And so we affirm it and declare it, even though it may not make sense sometimes. The apostles were intended to have confidence in what they taught, confidence of its divine origin, confidence in terms of its authority for them and for others. And we too, as the recipients of the Scriptures, are intended to have confidence in the Scriptures, not because we have confidence in Paul, in Peter, in John, the unknown author of Hebrews, Jude, (laughs) Matthew, Mark, because our confidence is in God. And God is the one who gave it to us through these men these very fallible men, but in such a way that there was no fallibility with it, the Scriptures. All right. So Jesus sent the Spirit to guide the church into truth on His behalf. Our second point is that Jesus speaks to the world through the Spirit. I should add, by the church. We'll get there. Okay? Jesus also sent the Spirit in order to assist the church in its ministry to the world. Jesus has shifted from how the church, how the the world responds to the church. If they hate you, it's only because they hated me first. To now, he's speaking about how they are to relate to the world. The Spirit works, it speaks to the world. But I think we need to remember he doesn't do it directly. He does it through the means of his people, the church. And so we have to recognize that our effectiveness in calling people out of the world is utterly dependent upon the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. That we can't go alone. 
We need to remember that we can only go with in the power of the Spirit, with Jesus. Now, what is it that the Spirit does? Jesus says that He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three things. And there's going to be... This is actually, um, as D.A. Carson notes, an interesting passage to understand because the Greek is so sort of compressed. It's very economical, and you can easily get messed up with this. So, the idea here is that, well, as an advocate, as the paraclete, normally the paraclete speaks to the judge, and here's where it can get a little confusing uh, for people. Because normally, yes, it's either the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney, but both of them speak about the defendant to the judge. But this is a sort of different scenario. This is not uh, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, acting as an attorney. But he's speaking to the one who's on trial instead. This points to the fact that people need convincing, that people need to be stripped of their illusions about who Jesus is. They need to be stripped very gently of their illusions about themselves. But I want us to remember this one thing before we press on about the meaning of this phrase that Jesus has thrown out there, and that's from Acts 4. In verse 31 it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so that leads into what we see in in Acts 5, with a number of conversions, but also the persecution that takes place. Okay, They were prepared for this because they prayed. And because they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit as some second blessing sort of thing. But they are living in submission to the Spirit. The Spirit is moving them and empowering them and making them bold so that they speak the Word of God to people who need to hear it. That's, I think, the context of what, that's what Jesus is getting at for the disciples. Acts 4 is what it looks like when it happens. Okay? That's kind of the, the picture of what Jesus intends here in John 16. Now, As Jesus unfolds these things concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, we'll notice that all of them are connected to Jesus. He is the center of all of these things, even though it's not about His righteousness, it's not directly about His judgment, it's not directly about sin, I mean, His sin, okay? Got to be careful. Okay, because of of the, the way in which this is grammatically structured, there needs to be, I think, a consistency that goes on so that we're not talking about the people's sin and then Christ's righteousness when he speaks. He's talking about the world and all of these, but it is Christ who reveals these things, so to speak, 
about the world. I hope that made sense. I hope that wasn't like one of my uh, instructors, uh, my, my professors in seminary, who said that what's, he always goofed it up. He said, what's a cloud in the pulpit is mist in the pew. And I thought, shouldn't it be the other way? That what's mist here is kind of cloudy there? Like it's less clear the farther you get away from me? Kind of thing? I hope this gets clear. So hang with me for just a moment. Okay? First off, sin. He ties it to himself by saying, because they do not believe in me. Unbelief is sin. Okay? It is a root sin, but it is not the only sin. Okay? It produces many sins. <laughs> it has many fruit that grow from its tree, shall we say. Uh, but Jesus is not saying that unbelief is the only sin. But what he's getting at is the idea that as the church in the power of the Spirit talks about Christ, the fact that people do not believe is sin. It is not like the difference between Coke and Pepsi, where it's essentially morally neutral. You can prefer one over the other or not like soda at all. Maybe you're a Dr. Pepper person, or maybe you just like to drink water and tea. I don't know. But all of those are morally neutral sorts of things, unless you want to get into the idea of defiling the physical body. That's a different story for another day. But, you know, unbelief isn't that way. It's not morally neutral. It, in and of itself, is sin. And so, when this, what, part of what the Spirit is doing is communicating, convicting the world of its sin, specifically in the rejection of Christ and His claims. Righteousness. He ties it to himself when he says, Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Now, how's that for a little cryptic? Okay. If we want to change the sort of in, in focus, uh, you know, on, on Christ and his righteousness, which is what people tend to sort of do, it, it, it would be having to do with his ascension, that he was proved righteous by his resurrection and ascension, but that doesn't really seem to fit with what's going on around it, the context around it. That is why D.A. Carson essentially argues for irony in this statement. And John's Gospel is filled with irony. So I tend to go with Carson on this. And it reveals the world's lack of righteousness, which is why Jesus goes to the Father and is no longer seen. Had he been received, the world would enjoy him, but the world did not receive him, and therefore he is gone. It's ex he's exposing the ugliness of the self-righteousness of the world. You see, because they are rejecting Jesus, the righteous one, who makes people righteous, and that in and of itself is unrighteousness. I hope that chain of thought made sense. It did in here. I don't know if it did out there. 
Okay? In a sense, what he's doing, Jesus is doing, is building on the statement in Isaiah 64. Okay? Jesus likes Isaiah. He likes to quote from Isaiah and allude to Isaiah. And Isaiah in 64, 6 notes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted or unclean garment. Seeing when this statement about righteousness in that way, that our righteousness outside of Christ is like a filthy rag. Not a dirty rag, but an unclean rag. That's the idea. One that has been polluted. Not just one that has some dirt on it or grass stain on it, but it's polluted and unclean. And so the righteousness of the world is polluted. But that's the rub. They think it's righteousness. They're being unjust, but they think they're being just. You see this in a number of ways. All kinds of things. There's certain cities. I'll I'll take a a less politically uh, explosive idea or or topic. There's certain cities that are going on, you know, in, in our country right now, where it's illegal to feed the homeless. Are you crazy? (laughs) It makes sense to the lawmakers, but it makes no sense to those who have been commanded to help those who are unfortunate, to care for the poor. That's not all we do, but we are supposed to do that. And so that is an unjust law. Even while they think it's just and wise and smart, it's not. And so what the world thinks is justice is really injustice, unjustice, unrighteousness. Thirdly, with regard to judgment, he says that the ruler of the world is judged. Again, it's one of those, wait a minute. What are you getting at here, Jesus? What are you trying to say? They judged Jesus. And when they did so, they were actually following the ruler of this world. And what they thought was the end of and the just uh, the uh, judgment of Jesus was actually the judgment on the ruler of the world. It seemed that Jesus was guilty and that Jesus was condemned and that Jesus was done for, but in reality, God has turned it upside down through the resurrection, vindicating Jesus, but also destroying the devil. What looked like judgment on Jesus is really the destruction of his enemies. Colossians 2, for instance He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Specifically, the cross. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 2, 
14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Best sort of thing I can think of, maybe the end of the first Matrix movie. I don't know. It looked like Neo was dead. It looked like the computer had won. But he didn't. Or it didn't. (laughs) As Neo finally figured it out, I guess. And how it is that he had to enter the program. This is all weird because it's the the Walchowski brothers who are no longer brothers. uh, You know. But anyway, what seemed to be the end of the story for Jesus was just the prelude to his exaltation. And what seemed to be the crowning moment for the enemy of God, Satan, was actually his downfall. That's what I mean. And so the Spirit works through the church to reveal the sin, the self-righteousness, and the faulty judgment of others, which means that first he reveals the sin, the self-righteousness, and the faulty judgment of the church. Okay? But he does this as we make Jesus known. And so in this sense, just as it is almost impossible to separate the Spirit from the Word, it's also supposed to be impossible to separate the Spirit from the church. Because we are the people who have been created and are bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you and I, if we engage in apologetics and evangelism, and we should, when we have opportunity, may we pray for opportunity, we have hope as we speak to the world because Jesus has gone away. Because He went away, He sent the Holy Spirit to guide the church into truth by giving us the New Testament through the apostles and also by giving us the contemporary church, the Holy Spirit still, to help us understand the Scriptures. To also give us a boldness to proclaim the Scriptures. And so having this knowledge of the truth, we are able to speak to the world with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, it's more like the Spirit is speaking through us for Jesus. He brings some to the truth and to salvation as we do this. Some will remain in their sin and their self-righteousness and their distorted judgment. But let us continue to pray for the Spirit to work in us and through us, giving us boldness so that we speak the Word of God to a world that needs His help. Let's pray. Father, all through this section of John's Gospel, we are confronted with the reality 
not just that Jesus was sent, but that he is preparing to send his disciples. And I thank you that he did not send them alone, but that first he sent the Holy Spirit. First, he gave them another advocate, helper, comforter, paraclete, to come alongside them, to give them the truth, to guide them in the truth, and to empower them for ministry. And Father, I thank you that the Holy Spirit is still at work in the church to do those very same things. And so we ask that that you would be at work in this congregation so that we would understand the Scriptures, so that we would be able to teach the Scriptures and understanding them, make them known to those that we know who don't know you. Grant us those opportunities. And may we always remember to look for the help of the Spirit in those times. For that is why he was sent. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.